The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, our 19th president, Rutherford Hayes. If you thought modern elections were tight, we present to you the election of 1876. The outcome was so close and so contested, some say a backroom deal ultimately gave Hayes the White House by a margin of just one electoral vote. Hayes did the best he could with his four years in office, but the formidable challenges of Southern Reconstruction have tarnished his legacy to this day. We're taking an objective look at the highly contested presidency of Rutherford Hayes, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us get into the intricacies of our 19th POTUS, we're going straight to Spiegel Grove in Fremont, Ohio, where the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library and Museum is located. Joining us is the Executive Director, Christy Weininger, and their resident historian, Dustin McLaughlin. Thanks to you both for taking the time to connect with us here on American POTUS. Thank you very much. Excited to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. Christine, Dustin, great to have you here. I remember years ago going up to Spiegel Grove and and touring around the Hayes Library Museum, thought it was just a wonderful place. Encourage everyone to go up and visit. And I want to start today with just a little bit on Rutherford's early background. Where was he born? Where did he grow up? Where did he go to school? What was his family like in those early years? Sure, it's a great place to start uh, at the very beginning. Yeah. And uh, so Rutherford was born in Delaware, Ohio, and his his parents had moved there, had come to Ohio from Vermont, and um, looking for for more opportunities. And uh, they thought Delaware, Ohio was that place. They brought with them a couple of children, not yet Rutherford, but uh, Rutherford's older siblings. Sadly, though, Rutherford's father died a couple of months before he was born. So mm. Rutherford never knew his father. So very, very bittersweet time for his mother, Sophia, to be welcoming a son into the family uh, shortly after losing her, her beloved husband. Mm. Uh, so Rutherford was born into a family that was um, very loving, very caring, very supportive uh, family that came together, certainly in crisis uh, when Rutherford's father died. His mother was a very strong-willed type person. They were actually in the midst of building a house, uh, Rutherford's mother, Sophia, when his father died. She had to oversee, not only did she lose her husband and she's got this brand new baby, but she's, she oversees the, the final construction of, of her home. So, you know, in, in lieu of that father figure, it was Sophia's brother, Sardis, who kind of stepped in and took over that, that role for Rutherford, kind of guiding him, nurturing him. There's an interesting relationship between Sophia and her brother, Sardis. Sophia was kind of a straight, narrow, extremely religious type person. Uh, Sardis was not. Uh, Sardis uh, was a bit of an imbiber. Um, <laughs> it was said that Sardis might not remember your name, but he would never forget what you drank. Um, so Rutherford kind of grew up with these two juxtaposed kind of people. One, one that maybe had a, a, 
a, a few more vices than Rutherford's mother would like. And uh, while Rutherford's mother is, is walking the straight, narrow path where, you know, very religious, everything is determined by God. If bad things are happening to you, it's because God is punishing you mm-hmm. in some way. This is kind of her, her view of the world. Uh, Rutherford had an older sister who also played a big role in his life. She was um, incredibly witty. Uh, their correspondence back and forth as they get a little older is uh, almost laugh out loud funny. Um, she really took him under his wing, uh, under her wing, and gave him lots of advice, you know, keep his nails clean to frequently brush <laughs> his teeth. And, and she says it all with, with great humor this kind of thing. She loves to tease him. So that's kind of the family he grew up in. He he goes to school and his very earlier school was right across the street. Um, later, he goes on to Norwalk Academy. Uh, Sardis, his uncle Sardis, is paying for a lot of this education. Um, he eventually goes to Kenyon College, graduates from there and decides that he wants to make the law his profession. And um, so he, he apprentices for a while in Columbus. That's where his sister, older sister, Fanny, is living by then. Um, and then eventually he goes on to Harvard. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a little bit of trivia, Harvard uh, has given us two attorney presidents, uh, the first one being Rutherford B. Hayes, and the second, uh, the only other one, was Barack Obama. Good company. Yeah. Sounds like I'd want to hang out with Sardis, by the way, but that's another matter altogether. <laughs> so, so where in Ohio is Delaware, Ohio? I'm not familiar with it. It's in the central part of Ohio. It's uh, yeah. Columbus is our state capital, and it's uh, there's been so much uh, growth around between Columbus and Delaware. It's, uh, Delaware is almost a, a, a northern suburb of, of I Columbus. See. I see. We, we have uh, Rutherford up to Harvard. Later, of course, he fights very bravely in the Civil War. That's a crucible for him like so many in his generation. Can you recount for our listeners a bit of his notable actions during the Civil War? Yeah, so he was 38 when he enlisted in the war. Um, he could have sat out of it. Ohio had met Lincoln's quota for the number of soldiers, but he really feels compelled to go. He and Lucy talk about it quite a bit. Lucy was very supportive of him. Um, we're lucky that Rutherford was a prolific diarist, so we know a lot about what he was thinking and feeling in his own words, and he writes a lot about uh, the, the conflict that erupts into the Civil War and kind of his his um, interpretation of it, how he's processing it. So he really wants to get involved. He really wants to hold the union together and he wants to he wants to see slavery end um he's he's pretty adamant about those two things so he enlists and and he uh, is attached to the 23rd ohio volunteer infantry Rutherford's 38 he's an attorney he has no military experience whatsoever Um, but like a good lawyer he does his research and so he reads uh silas casey's infantry tactics he reads hw halleck's uh elements of military art and science. You know, this is how yeah. he's educating himself. He does, uh, he, he kind of mixes and mingles with some of the regular members of the regular army at West Point. So he's kind of talking to them. This is how he's informing himself and, mm. and how he's kind of learning on the fly how to be a good soldier. He and the 23rd spend most of the war in Western Virginia, which of course becomes West Virginia during the war. Some of your listeners are probably familiar with Morgan's Raid, uh, comes through Southern Ohio and uh, Hayes and the 23rd are sent uh, along to chase Morgan's raiders. They they capture a lot of them in southern Ohio. Of course, Morgan escapes uh, for a time. Rutherford's wounded 
quite a few times during the war, about five times. He he gets hit with bullets, shrapnel. He, he has a couple of horses shot out from underneath mm-hmm. him, which must be, I, I can't even imagine how discombobulating all that would be. Sure. But he his men describe him as being mm-hmm. very, very ferocious uh, during battle, that um, you know he's, he's so gentlemanly and mannerly and, and calm outside of battle, but uh, that, you know, that that really changes during battle. He, his men also often remembered that he, he was never encouraging them to, to, you know, go on boys. They never heard him say that. He was always saying, come on boys. In fact, there's one account where um, he's, he's out with the, the colors, you know, the, the regimental colors, color guard, and they get out in front of the line of battle and a commanding officer says, get it back to the brigade line. And he shouts out, no, bring the brigade up to us. And there's this big cheer and the men <laughs> wow. rush forth and uh, take the day. So that was kind of the, the type of commander he was. He spends most of the war as a colonel. The last, Towards the end of the war, he's part of the uh, Shenandoah Valley campaign, which mm-hmm. is um, led by General Sheridan. Um, and for that, he's is promoted to general uh, by the end of the war. Now, during the war, he's elected to the House. Is that right? Yeah, he doesn't take the seat. Uh, mm-hmm. He wants to finish mm-hmm. out the war. And he, he writes a letter back when he's notified that... Um, his name has been put forth as a candidate for this office. Um, he, he says, I would rather be scalped than to leave my post at a wow. cri- you know, national crisis like this. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that becomes good good campaign slogan later. <laughs> so he goes into the House, though, after that, becomes three-time governor and, of course, president. Did he always think ahead to that type of life of public service? Honestly, I don't, I don't think he did. I mean, when he was younger, as uh, Christy has pointed out, the way that he was raised by his mom and his mom's younger brother, Sardis, who was a very avid uh, Whig. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hayes was, at 13 years old, his mom is complaining that uh, she thinks that he thinks way too much of politics for a kid that age. So <laughs> he's he's very interested in politics. And obviously, because of his uncle Sardis, he becomes a, an avid Whig as well. And, and Sardis convinces him to also be uh, one who is anti-abolitionist. And kind of like what Christy was talking about earlier with uh, this straight-laced mom and this a uh, little bit more of a, a loose uh, uncle, he's also got two uncles that are influencing him as well. Sardis, of course, we've already know we know about. And on the other shoulder, it would be Austin, who's back in New England, who uh, has a anti or an abolitionist sorry stance that uh, Hayes is sort of dealing with these two sides of that particular topic. Mm. Interesting. You know, as he gets older, he actually wants to become a farmer. You know, he doesn't really want to be a lawyer or a politician. And his uncle Sardis and Uncle Austin are talking to each other about how, uh, what schools Hayes could possibly go to to pursue this path. Uh, but his mom wins out. His mom wants him to stay in, in Ohio, and Hayes agrees to go to Kenyon for a time uh, in Gambier. But then he ends up staying there the whole time and uh, does become. Uh, does focus on the law, you know, for a quick, mm-hmm. for a quick uh, few months, he's in Columbus because he thinks he's going to study as an apprent- apprentice there, basically to follow another lawyer. Uh, but as Christy points out, he goes off to Harvard Law School uh, for a couple of years and then uh, comes back to Ohio uh, with the hope of simply, you know, starting a law career uh, where we're at now and, and, and what became Fremont, Ohio. But he eventually moves down to Cincinnati, and he falls into the public life really by accident. The current city solicitor in Cincinnati was actually hit by a train and was killed. Uh, And Hayes, who had made a name for himself in politics or or in 
political circles down there was was uh, appointed to take that spot. And uh, he does get uh, elected in his own right as well for a second, for a full first term, I should say. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, joins the Civil War. As Christy pointed out, he didn't need to. It did help his political career for sure if he wanted to move into that. He's asked to run both in 1862 and in 1864. Uh, he turns 1862 down, but he does go for it in 1864. And as Christie points out, his way of campaigning was basically to write that line about not uh, whoever should abandon his service to, to uh, campaign should be scalped. He's writing that to his friend, William Henry Smith, who's also a, a newspaper journalist who does a very good job of publicizing that statement, which becomes basically his civil, his uh, his campaign slogan. Um, he wins the uh, election to the House, and that's how that starts. Um, in the House, he's he's on the Lands Claims Committee and becomes uh, the chair of the Committee of the Library, which is quite fitting for Rutherford to just put him around books, <laughs> which is basically what uh, he would like to do. You know, while in Congress, he's He's siding with the radical Republicans. He's not a radical Republican, but he's definitely one of their um, uh, allies, uh, supporting all of their all of their agendas. Even going through the South to survey the Freedmen's Bureau. Mm-hmm. Um, he's even writing friends, asking them to tell them if he's getting in too deep with the radical Republicans because he's unable to see it from an outside perspective. But after about three years in, in the House, he quits halfway through his second term. You know, being in the Civil War for four years and then in and out of uh, Washington for three years, he was was ready to go home and uh, made the decision to return home where he does run for governor and very successfully uh, runs for governor. And the number of things that he accomplishes, most famously uh, ushering through the 15th Amendment through the state. Uh, but in the end, his uh, his his comment, his initial comment on the governorship was that it seemed that his job was to place a signature on the top of fancy paper. So I don't think that he really thought uh, initially of the position as having a lot of import. His mom, by the way, really hated to see him get into public service. She said he was going to come go to Washington and come back an alcoholic because that's what everybody who went to Washington became politicians uh, turned into alcoholics. And uh, so his mom wasn't very she would have preferred to see him become a minister. But that's not the path that uh, he chose. If you'd like to know more about the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library and Museum, simply visit AmericanPOTUS.com. We have a resource section there with links to their website that contains all sorts of information on the 19th POTUS. And while you're at the American POTUS site, send us a note and let us know about any authors or books that you think would make for an interesting future episode. You've mentioned a couple times early life, looking at the Whig Party, which, of course, we know and the political transformation leading up to the Civil War goes away. And you have the Republican Party when he runs for the president. Of course, he's a Republican. To him, what what did that stand for? Of course, I know there are different shades of Republican in the Republican Party. But what were the core beliefs that being a Republican meant to Rutherford Hayes? Yeah, Hayes was a Republican, uh, for sure. Uh, but as I we've already pointed out, he wasn't always. He, obviously, he started with that Whig party. And it seemed the, the central components that really wedded he and Sardis to the Whig party was this idea of uh, defined roles, you know, of the governmental bodies and a belief in economic development. Uh, you know, none of this really mattered much as the uh, nation moved into those, eight, those volatile 1850s. 
when uh, the country was divulging into sectionalism, which meant that you know these parties were are the people were really voting based on their you know, ge- geography and of course the issue of slavery. Um, Hayes starts to fall in line with that northern view. Uh, he even writes his friend. Guy Bryan, who's a Texan, uh, says that he's basically a, a political free agent without a home, you know, as the Whig Party's dissolving, mm. which I think is um, really him blowing smoke. I think he's playing coy here. He wasn't going to become a Democrat. The only thing that looked in that way would be as if he supported slavery. And while we can see Hayes was anti-abolitionist in his early years, I don't think we could ever say that he would have seen been be seen as a supporter of that institution. Uh, so he becomes a part of the Republican Party, really, as the wave of Republicanism starts to swing through Ohio. And as you guys know, he he's a fugitive. He's a lawyer in Cincinnati defending fugitive slaves. He becomes an advocate of of ending slavery throughout the 1850s, and that becomes a big part of of what he believes and what pulls him to that party. But as we move past the Civil War, and as the Republican Party begins to need to define itself beyond this one policy is when Hayes begins to see a new way for the Republican Party to possibly move forward. Obviously, he's part of a movement of people who begin to think this way, of the the Republican Party being a little bit more about economic development from a northern viewpoint and moving beyond, especially as we get into the late 1870s, moving beyond that moment of Reconstruction. And since I know we're going to talk about Hayes and Reconstruction later, I'll just lay that there. But uh, Hayes believed in this path forward for the Republican Party looked very similar to the Whig Party that he came from. Getting toward that Reconstruction and getting to the presidency, we know the election of 1876 that pitted Hayes against Samuel Tilden of New York was a very controversial election. There were contested electoral votes in several states. It was really a complicated situation. Can you describe that and explain that to our listeners? And then once Hayes was in the White House, how did he handle that controversy moving forward? Well, you're exactly right. It's very complex and it is extremely controversial. We have done entire podcasts just on the intricacies of the 1876 election. And so we'll, we'll, we'll try to keep it, uh, simplify it somewhat, uh, for our purposes here. So the election takes place and, uh, Hayes is at his home in Spiegel Grove. He's with a you know, Lucy, his wife, and and just a, a few friends and supporters, and they're, you know, getting results in the tele- telegraph wire coming in. And Hayes goes to bed that night thinking he lost the election. And he writes in his diary, you know, I've lost, uh, but it's okay. He says, he, you know, Lucy and I are still going to sleep well tonight. It's, you know, it's okay. And the next day he starts talking to the press and, and you know, conceding to Tilden and, and the Republican Party says, whoa, 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 wait, uh, we are starting to see some irregularities here. And uh, so they tell him, stop talking to the press. We're going to we're going to investigate. We're going to look into some things. And um, but it happened in three states in the South, South Carolina, uh, Louisiana and Florida. There were still federally imposed governors there uh, as, as a lingering part of uh, effect of the Civil War and, and Reconstruction. There were some things going on in those states that were very peculiar for that time. Mm-hmm. And African-Americans in those states were, were 
harassed. It harassed isn't even the right word. They were terrorized uh, if they tried to vote in in that presidential election. They, you know, the African American men had the right to vote by that point in time, but they, you know, they did so under imminent danger to to themselves. And so those those are kind of some things at play. So what happened is there were two returns sent in from those states. One return said Rutherford B. Hayes has won you know, the state of Louisiana, South Carolina, Florida. Uh, But then another returning board, you know, this kind of shadow government that was not imposed by the federal government says, no, Tilden has won in these states. So this created a constitutional crisis because what do you do when a state says both candidates have won the election, right? Mm. This can't be possible. So both sides, both Republican and Democrat, kind of had to figure out how to deal with this. And the Democrats really pushed for an electoral commission to be formed to do a thorough investigation into who actually won the 1876 election. But it took Congress a while to decide that, yes, this was the method it wanted to take mm. to sort all this out. Mm. <clears throat> so the electoral commission, uh, and then you've got an appoint an electoral committee, you know, who's going to be on the electoral commission. So all these things have to be decided. All these things have to be worked out. And Republicans and Democrats are working together to decide what the decision-making process will be. And this is where they land. So Mm -hmm. the electoral commission starts holding sessions. Uh, They hear testimony. They start looking at the election results. And they do determine that there was fraud. Um, There were a number of precincts where, you know, there were, say, you know, a thousand eligible voters. But you know, 1,500 votes were cast. Uh, so rather than trying to determine which of those votes were legitimate, they throw out entire districts of, of votes. They also were able to verify that African-Americans were not able to vote in the legitimate way that they were supposed to. So for those reasons, the Electoral Commission decides that Hayes won the electoral count by by one, <laughs> one mm-hmm. electoral vote. They say they declare him the president. But of course, they're only making a recommendation to Congress. It's Congress that has to accept the Electoral Commission's decision. And the Electoral Commission had taken some amount of time to do this. Uh, they had taken a few months to look at all the intricacies of this. So now, where are we in the timeline? Um, in the 19th century, inaugurations were held in March, on March 4th, not January 20th, like they are now. Uh, we're within uh, a few days of the inauguration, and the country still does not know who its 19th president is going to be. Congress, of course, uh, filibusters, they challenge. The Democrats are not happy with the Electoral Commission's findings. They do not want to accept Hayes as president. And I, I think Dustin's going to talk about this in a minute, but there are a series of meetings that are held between members of the Republican Party and congressional Democrats trying to hammer out their differences, trying to come to some kind of, of peaceful conclusion. The Democrats keep filibustering, though, until about 48 hours before the inauguration, when finally, about four o'clock in the morning, they, they declared that they will accept the Electoral Commission's decision and Hayes will be the 19th president of the United States. This does not set up Hayes very well for the presidency at all. Uh, he's referred to as your fraudulency. He's referred to as Rutherford Hayes. So he does have a lot of work to do uh, when he becomes president. When he steps off that inaugural platform, um, you know, roughly half the country does not see him as a legitimate president. So there was some concern that there would not be a peaceful transfer. And I, I think we look, especially given the recent events of, you know, the election of 2020 and uh, riot at the Capitol on January 6th. I think 
1876 resonates with us more today um, because we we were in a very similarly angsty situation mm-hmm. in Indeed. 1876. Yes. Um, but there was a peaceful transfer of power. Um, Tilden very quietly fades into the background. Of course, he believed that he won the election, but he let Congress, you know, Congress had had decreed. Mm-hmm. They had made their decision. So uh, Tilden doesn't challenge it. Uh, Hayes becomes president. He wants to tour. The first thing he wants to do is tour the country. He wants people to be able to see him. He wants to be able to hear and meet people. Um, so he feels like he can do this kind of healing tour, essentially, of the United States. Mm-hmm. The first place that he wants to go is the South. And his advisors mm-hmm. tell him, you, you can't. It's not safe for you down there. We, we cannot guarantee that you won't come to some harm, which is crazy today that we think that's how powerful the tensions were at that time that the sitting president of the United States newly elected uh, wasn't even safe mm-hmm. in part of our country. But that's the, that's the way it was. So he waited. He went to New England first and carries this message of healing and unity. But before too long, he starts traveling. He gets to the South. He gets out West. He gets all the way out to California. He's the first uh, president of the United States to get out to California. And uh, he comes back to Washington, D.C. And, and, and he says the country is one and united again, mm-hmm. which, of course, is a little bit naive. It really wasn't, but he hoped that by doing that had helped resolve some of these issues and and some of the the tension that was going on in the country that was really challenging his validity at, at becoming president. Of course, and I, I do want to get to Dustin on those negotiations. But I, you know, one thing that came to mind as you were saying that is the man had no real time to organize his cabinet. Was, was he was he making preparations along the way, assuming this could happen, or or did he? Did he have to scramble once it was finally became clear that he was going to be president? He was scrambling a little bit, but he was confident uh, that he would become president. And so he had started to make some efforts in, in that regard. He had started sure. to think about who he wanted on his cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, Dustin, I don't know if you've done a little more research there. You probably have some more insight into mm-hmm. how that actually happened. Yeah, the, the cabinet issue is going is really important, actually, to how Hayes wants to move forward. And I think it's going to come out a little bit when we start talking about the bargain. Uh, yeah. The people that he's talking to, you know, his intimate, the people who become his intimate advisors, a couple of them become his cabinet members. Mm-hmm. And he's going to really side, especially I know you want to talk here at some point about factions within the Republican Party. This is all intertwined, and um, the cabinet becomes a, a tension point, especially when it comes to a few key members. Mm-hmm. So let, let's let's do talk about the negotiations that led to his ultimate occupation of the White House. And, and what, yeah. I know that that historians, some historians, have said, well, he made a deal to aim Reconstruction. Other historians say, well, he recognized the the desire of the North to, to move on to the next stage and to be past that. Where do you stand in terms of what happened and what type of deal, if any, was made? Yeah, this is obviously something that we look into quite a bit, especially when it comes to popular accounts of mm-hmm. this historical moment, you know, as it pops up in the, in the news and news mm-hmm. cycles. Oftentimes, there is this connected narrative between what everything that Christie just laid out and then the subsequent decision decisions regarding reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And it often comes down to this belief by some and some sort of a bargain that occurred mm-hmm. 
as Southern Democrats were trying to filibuster the returns or filibuster the seating or the verifications, I should say, of Hayes' election, uh, that key Republicans worked with these Democrats to prevent that filibuster from, from, from going, or at least the dilatory motions. It's interesting historiographical topic simply because while that's a, a very popular memory from many historians and from mm-hmm. the popular accounts in, in, in the news, historians who actually study this moment have a very different view of it. Um, I've got in front of me a number of quotes. I don't want to go through them because I assume that would be quite boring. But I, the, the, from, from Eric Foner to Charles Calhoun to Gregory Downs, all tend to agree that this moment was more or less uh, a continuation of what was happening before and that there wasn't a bargain to be had. I mean, even uh, the, uh, his, his name, uh, who wrote, he, the guy who wrote Fraud of the Century, which was a book about how this whole election was fraud, he even had to concede at the end of his book that the, this, this agreement that possibly took place at the Wormley Hotel to bargain off uh, Southern uh, blacks for the presidency uh, was more of a con- mutual concession of an obvious than a, than a uh, device for controlling larger events. Mm. So whatever is happening here, whatever is bar, and I plan to go into what, what was happening here as, as we, as we go forward. Mm-hmm. But at this moment, I just kind of want to say that our foundation, and I think the foundation of many historians who look at this moment is that yes, there was a very controversial election that required a lot of, of infighting and all the partisan bickering that, that Christie brought up. And there was an in- ending of reconstruction that occurred in the first few months of Hayes' presidency. But the question is, are they connected? And I think that the general historian who studies this moment would say that they're not. And uh, the reason, uh, I've, I've got a few points to kind of point out why that is. One, as we're moving into this this moment after after 1876 and 1877, and as we're going through Reconstruction, these states have already gone through the process of creating state constitutions and, be, and being returned into the Union. And when those states are being returned into the Union, they are becoming states just as any other state. They're becoming a state just as Ohio, uh, any northern state. So the continual presence of federal troops in those states is going to require a government that in those states that is okay with that presence or is okay with that, that sort of, uh, of, a, of federal action there. Um, and throughout this process, as you might learn in any American history class, these southern states are also trying to not only become part of the union again or working through that process, but then to be redeemed. And, and redempt, redemption for southern states was that a friendly democratic government was in control in the state houses. And part of that would obviously be now that you don't have a state government who's going to play ball with continued federal intrusion. You know, by the time Hayes is as, as president, it's becoming rather obvious to, to many Republicans and, and many people that the only way that Reconstruction is even uh, being held at all is through military presence. The second troops are being negated by state governments or being withdrawn, the, 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 the Democratic governments now have free reign. And, and what this is, and this is absolutely 
on display. Eventually, once Hayes does have those troops that were surrounding the state capitals of Louisiana and South Carolina, when he orders them back to their barracks, um, almost immediately the Democratic governments uh, take over. So knowing that the uh, state governments were no longer in support of this federal um, this federal presence, we know that that was something that that many people were talking about were aware of. Hayes also was set on this path uh, even before he was elected. You know, in his nomination letter, when he was nominated as a Republican candidate, he wrote he writes that. He was. He is in favor of honest and local, or sorry, honest and capable local government. And so we can quibble, I guess, over what honest and capable means and how that's defined. But in the end, this is a way of him basically saying this moment of federal oversight on the South is no longer uh, going to continue. And the reason why he felt that way is because he thought the will of the people obviously no longer supported this effort. This is pretty obvious from the way that the latter parts of the Grant administration is going. As, as there were outbreaks in Mississippi and Louisiana over, over who's going to co- control those governments, and as the federal government's getting involved, it's becoming obvious to Grant that the backlash is against him for, be, for intruding on these state governments. It seems as if the popular will is no longer in favor of this. And Hayes had begun to believe what many had believed at the time. Further intrusion by the, by the federal government was actually producing the opposite effect of what was intended. By continually intruding in Southern affairs, and this is what they were thinking, what, the, what, was, what was happening is it was continuing the, the violence and the hostility. And only by removing that would you could then move on to the point of healing those wounds from the Civil War, which leads to the, sort of the final point of all of this is that Hayes felt that all of these things uh, were no longer viable. You know, as the history was as rolling along, this is what the, the, the things that were laid before he and those he trusted were believing. And he thought the best way forward was through, uh, going back to the previous talk, was through really the rebirth of a Whig party, trying to bring back those former Southern Whigs, who identified with the Democratic Party on the slavery issue, but would identify with the Republican Party if the Republican Party took a strong stand on economic improvement, on a sound money policy, and on civil service reform, which we'll talk Mm -hmm. about here in a minute. And his hope was by taking race out of the political realm. He would end what uh, many called the color line in politics, and hopefully... Uh, Southerners in general, white or black men, Southern men, would vote based on those other old traditional political issues. And in a way, this was saying that even black men would have the ability to vote for the Democratic Party if they felt that they more aligned with the Democratic Party. This, in fact, removed potentially Southern white men from wanting to to prevent black men from voting because they just as may be voting with you as against you. It seems all rather great. Uh, Hayes was wrong, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. was, this was. I think he was underestimating the, the deeply embedded racism in the South. Yeah. Uh, but potentially, he was potentially naive of how racist this, or how, how deep racism went 
but we don't know what his options were. You know, Hayes, well, we do know what his options were, and Hayes would say that his options were very slim. You know, the military was completely decimated as far as, uh, as, far as funding um, as, and as well as uh, the desire within the nation to not ever really have a standing army, which was still a popular feeling at the time. And it was, uh, it was there were a whole lot of options for him, mm-hmm. but this was the option he chose. In, in the end, it did not work out as we know. Yeah. Was he concerned as he went later in life? I know he had stood up so much for African-Americans pre-presidency. Seeing those results starting to happen in the South with the end of Reconstruction, did that upset him? Did did he ever comment on that? He he does get reflective towards the end of his presidency, and he writes in his diary, you know, he was criticized at the time. Now, we criticize him today for some different reasons, but at the time, um, he was criticized by his fellow whites as letting the Republican Party collapse in the South. You know, so he gets, that's what he gets a little reflective about. I, I agree with Dustin. He he was so naive. He really thought the presence of those troops enforcing federal government's choice mm-hmm. for governor in those states, um, that that was causing all this angst and backlash. And that's why African-Americans were getting discriminated against. So, Same. you know, you remove the thorn and people's side and then there there can be peace there can be healing you know Hayes really thought all he was ending was the military portion of reconstruction he has Dustin outline he had other thoughts about how re- he, he didn't think the south was reconstructed he he still saw that there was a lot of work to do and and, and you know in the north too I mean we're, we're talking about racism in the south but um, the north kind of said you know hey slaves you're free now but but don't come here you know so there was massive amount of racism everywhere and I think Hayes gets a little reflective in the end of his presidency about the actions that he took, but not really fully understanding racism in the hearts and minds of the American people was going to be massively difficult to overcome. And I don't think he fully grasped what the government role in eliminating that racism would be or, or, or could be or should be. I think those were some of the things that he was questioning at the end of his presidency. The one thing that I think that he he says that I find to be an interesting statement, and I don't know the exact wording, but he he basically says, I was willing to let my reputation go in order to hopefully achieve this outcome. So I I think in a sense he was aware that Mm -hmm. what he was doing was a bit of a gambit. Mm-hmm. But he really thought it was the only way forward. And I agree with everything Christy said about how he almost believed in this sort of moral high ground would win the day. And, and obviously we know from mm-hmm. history that it, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't for quite a long time. We'll get into the personal side of Rutherford Hayes in just a moment. But first, we want to remind you to visit AmericanPOTUS.com. You can easily find a web link to the Hayes Presidential Library and Museums. And be sure to like or follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. So we know when he's in the White House, um, he has to obviously address issues other than Reconstruction as well. And one of those is civil service reform. Why was that so important during his administration and what actions did he take in that arena? He was really passionate about civil service reform. In fact, he issues an executive order requiring his cabinet members to hire people who are qualified for their position, not just out of loyalty to the Republican Party. And this even upset his fellow Republicans. And it upset Democrats, too, because this the whole 
the whole spoil system. This this is how government ran. So he was really kind of an upstart in that and and turning the whole operation on its head, which, you know, it did not go over well with with either party. But Hayes is coming in, he is immediately following President Grant, and Grant's cabinet was incredibly corrupt. And it wasn't just Grant's cabinet. There was, I mean, the government had a system of functioning. Uh, it was kind of a saying, you know, it takes a lot of grease to keep the wheels of government running very smoothly. And that, that grease was the spoils system. So, you know, we're familiar with these uh, having, you know, the, the boss, you know, up in New York, boss Tweed and, you know, these political operatives that, you know, bought votes. And Hayes did not agree with this. Maybe he gets a little bit of that from his uh, straight and narrow mother, uh, the, you know, the mother that followed the, the, the straight and narrow path. He, he that is how he, he saw this as a way to clean up politics, as something that was much needed. But I think especially becoming president after Grant, he wanted to show that there was a concerted effort by the Republicans to clean up government. Otherwise, he, he, you know, he was worried about the future of the Republican Party. Yeah. And part of that was his taking on the Conkling machine, right? Yeah, the Conkling machine is, as if I don't know if you guys have delved into Garfield much, but obviously that gets a little more attention with the rivalry between Garfield and Hayes or Garfield and, and Conkling. But Hayes and Conkling had a bit of a rivalry as well. And uh, when, when a matter of fact, Hayes becomes nominated really because Conkling supporters go to Hayes mostly because they didn't want Blaine. It was, they, they picked the guy that wasn't Blaine basically. And he was the one who had this momentum uh, but once once uh, Hayes becomes uh, the nominee and as he's beginning to uh, identify that he is, in fact, a re- civil service reformer, Conklin doesn't really support Hayes. And as we move into this election and as we start to determine um, that Hayes is going to pull this thing out through this electoral commission, this matter of fact, the historian who's written the most brilliantly about this moment, his name is Michael Les Benedict. And he actually ties what goes on at this Wormley hotel to civil service reform more than anything. Uh, Just to give a a quick recap that this, the Wormley hotel was supposedly this, this smoke-filled room that determined the outcome of the election that ended the filibuster where Hayes traded away uh, Southern or Southern blacks for uh, the presidency. Uh, what Michael S. Benedict says is that this Wormley Hotel really couldn't have been about that because that was already decided by the Electoral Commission. What it was really about was Hayes attempting to uh, develop a smooth transition, potentially his allies trying to develop a smooth transition because if the Southern Democrats tried this doomed to fail filibuster, it wasn't going to work. It was really just going to stall things. What they were afraid of was that it would ignite more anger from the Republican press who would then continually point out uh, that once again we're fighting the Civil War, kind of throw this bloody shirt rhetoric around that uh, was popular at the time. And Perhaps then Hayes would be put in this position of having to weigh in and upset uh, members of the Republican Party who he was going to rely on. And he did not want to have to create waves in a way that would make him rely on the Republican Party regulars like Roscoe Conkling the way that, that Grant had. Mm-hmm. And he, was, he, was charting a new, he was charting a new path as we kind of already laid out. And his path really had a lot to do with that liberal Republican revolt from Grant from 1872. 
So these are the guys who really Hayes starts to, to lean on, including Carl Schurz, who becomes his uh, his secretary of the interior. And all of this is because Hayes, once again, he wants his administration to be remembered for being the one that reforms civil service. In a way, uh, he is successful, but in a way, he plays the civil service game just like anyone else, but only to the end where he thinks it's going to provide for that Southern Whig party to come back into the Republic or come into the Republican fold, I should mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of seen in the way that he uh, brings in David Key, that former Confederate to be his postmaster general, um, who we think of the postmaster general as sort of maybe he has a lesser cabinet seat, but really that's a, that's a main patronage providing position. He's able to appoint a lot of Southerners throughout and hopefully win their support into the Republican party. It was a very calculated thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this is really connected to this issue of civil service reform, which Hayes is so, um, that, that's his number one. That's what he really cares about. Now that we're, we're running low on time, I want to make sure before we, we end today that I ask you about Lucy Hayes, his wife. Well, how did they meet? What was her background? How did she approach being first lady of the United States? Lucy was a warm, caring people person. And um, actually, she and Hayes met in uh, Lucy grew up in Delaware, Ohio. She was born in Chillicothe, Ohio, the southern part of the state, but um, state of Ohio. But her father died when she was two. And uh, so she and Rutherford kind of had that in common. They neither one of them knew their fathers. Uh, Lucy's mother just thought there were better opportunities in Delaware. So uh, when Lucy was very young, they moved to Delaware. Of course, that's where the Hayes family was living. And Delaware was not a very big town at that point in time. So the Hayes and the Webbs, was Lucy's maiden name, those two families knew each other fairly well. Uh, Lucy was nine years younger than Rutherford. So as they were growing up, it's not like they were um, mixing and mingling too much because at that Point in their lives, nine years is a pretty big age difference. But uh, Rutherford goes on, as we've said, he goes on to college in Harvard and kind of leaves Ohio and he comes back to Ohio and he's kind of trying to find his way. He writes in his diary. He's um, he, he's hanging out in Fremont, kind of practicing some law there with Uncle Sardis. He's kind of bored in Fremont. You know, he's a young man, footloose, fancy free. He wants to be someplace cool, you know, where really interesting things are happening. And he decides that that place is Cincinnati. So uh, he heads down to Cincinnati and for Queen City of the West. There's all kinds of cultural things going on there. Lots of mixing mixing and mingling of cultural events, think, places to go, things to do. And, and he's kind of enamored by all that. Well, his mother writes him and says, hey, do you know who's also in Cincinnati now is uh, Miss Lucy Webb. You remember her from from Chillicothe. And, uh, of course, Rutherford says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So mom encourages him to get in touch. Uh, Lucy's mother also knows that Rutherford is in Cincinnati. So the moms play a little bit matchmaker. (laughs) Uh, Rutherford and Lucy listen to their moms and and reconnect, and uh, they really hit it off. Lucy was very influential in Rutherford's life. It's it's really her anti-slavery views that he starts to adopt, her views on temperance that he starts to adopt. So they're, they were a really good match. We have a lot of their letters back and forth during the Civil War, very endearing, very heartfelt. This was a couple that tr- truly was madly in love with each other. Uh, they had eight children. Uh, sadly, three died before the age of two, and that was very, very difficult for the family. Uh, Rutherford and Lucy went through a lot of grief in their lives, um, and, and that was one example of that. As far as her approach to being First Lady, um, she 
kind of took a low-key approach, but she she definitely had causes that were important to her. You know, she the first lady, the role of first lady was not a clearly defined position. It was kind of to be a hostess in the White House. But uh, as hostess and, and that social side of politics, that's where a lot of things happened. You know, so there were important things going on there. These, you know, events and things at the White House that she were hosting, they were key strategy, you know, who was getting invited. I mean, you know, who got seated next to each other mm-hmm. at the table, even, you know, that, that, that was all, there was all a strategy there. So uh, she was all certainly part of that. But uh, people remembered her as just being a genuinely caring person. She loved nature. She loved anything outdoors. She took a trip with Vice President Wheeler. They go up into the Adirondacks fishing. Hmm. Uh, Lucy caught this massive salmon. They send it back to the White House on a train car on ice, and they have this big you know, party <laughs> when she gets back. She and Rutherford hosted uh, Madame Zalika, who was an opera singer, an African-American opera singer. She was the first African-American to perform in the White House. You know, so... In some ways, they were breaking some of those social. Again, like I said, who was invited to the White House was was very strategic. It it communicated certain things and certain values. Um, so it was important to have um, an African American singer in the White House. Yes. So those were kind of some of the things that she was was helping to round out her husband's presidency. Now we'd like to get into the personal side of President Hayes with a few short but perhaps unusual questions. Here we go. He was a general, congressman, governor, and a president. Which title meant the most to him? General, absolutely. In fact, he even says it. He he prefer. In fact, in his post presidency, he he still you know retained the right to president. You know, we still today refer to our past presidents. We still call them president sure. so and so. Uh, Rutherford instructed people: if you're going to re- refer to me formally, please refer to me as General Hayes. Mm-hmm. That's what he preferred. In fact, when when he died, there were a lot of dignitaries were honorary pallbearers, but it was the uh, some of his comrades from the 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry. They were the ones who actually carried his body to the tomb. He was buried with the ribbon of the Loyal Legion around his neck. Uh, he had the Medal of the Army of West Virginia and the Cumberland on one side of his chest and the badge of the 23rd on the other side of his chest. So uh, it really was his military experience that meant the most to him. That's interesting. We hear that about so many of our mm-hmm, presidents sure. that have been generals like Jackson, Washington. It's a common answer. General is the most important title. Well, certainly I think military service bonds people in, in distinct ways. And um, soldiers were always welcome at Spiegel Grove. There were a lot of reunions there. So uh, he and Lucy both became very much champions in in, in their critic throughout Rutherford's political career. You know, governor, president of the United States, uh, veterans affairs were always very important, something they strongly advocated for. I just always thought it was every time I see he writes to other generals and he always refers to them as general he always he always yeah. uses that, and I've always wondered if others thought it was kind of obnoxious. But uh, it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like it was a common thing. So that's good. So speaking of his military service, he had a reputation for bravery in the Civil War, wounded not once but five times, I believe. So who was a tougher POTUS? Hayes, Andrew Jackson, or Teddy Roosevelt? Tougher POTUS. Tougher POTUS. I, I'm going to say Teddy Roosevelt. Um, I don't know of any guy who can be shot before a speech and still go out there and do it. (laughs) So I think, I think he gets the, he gets the award over anyone else. Oh, and we all know that story about Roosevelt and I, it is, it's, it's, it's so compelling. And uh, so I, I certainly, 
take Dustin's point on that. But, but of, of course, I, I have to say Hayes. Yeah, of course, <laughs> and, you better. And, and for my money, if you put me in a room with all, all three of them, I'd much rather face Hayes and, and Teddy than, than Jackson. Because yeah. I think Jackson's just going to be the whole <laughs> right, right, right. You didn't ask who was the most cutthroat. <laughs> so, Dustin, maybe this one's for you. I think it's safe to say he had one of the more famous beards in presidential history. Was he a man who presented himself well? Did he like fine clothes? Was he well-groomed? That kind of thing. Honestly, I, I, I because of the, the, the beard, I, I get it. Um, you know, his beard was rather unkempt, it felt like, for, for at that point in his presidency. I Honestly, I'm going to let Christy answer this because I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she's got a, a, a perspective on fine clothes and well-groomed. I would say no on well-groomed, uh, but uh, maybe maybe you have something for us, Christy. I agree with you. You see some pictures of him, and I, I his beard. Yeah, I don't know. I, certainly, they had beard oil and things in that that day, right? You know, that's yeah. so popular now. I mean, you know, all these men and their luxurious beards. I mean, Dustin right. has a luxurious. Beard. Uh, if you look at those pictures of Hayes, it's you know there's kind of whiskers going every which way. Uh, you know, every once in a while he's got a little flip up on the side of his hair in some of those pictures. So I don't, I don't, I don't know that he was. Uh, I mean, I think it, he was well groomed in the sense that yes, he did like to present himself well, uh, but I, I don't know that he uh, spent hours at the salon. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, for sure. All right. So eight presidents have come from the state of Ohio, including Hayes and the man that followed him, James Garfield. So who would you say is the worst and the best Buckeye POTUS? So the eight are William Hen- William Harrison, Ulysses Grant, Rutherford Hayes, James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, William Taft, and Warren Harding. Who was the worst Buckeye POTUS? We'll start there. I can't believe you're going to make us answer this. <laughs> <laughs> Upset all your colleagues throughout the Buckeye State. Yeah. Yeah, I know. This is a landmine. Because <laughs> we know who you're going to say is the best. We know that. <laughs> no, I think it's interesting. And, and in all series, you know, Dustin and I have um, – We've we've been in the public history realm for a long time, and, and at Hayes, we've had a number of speakers come in and, and talk about the you know the ranking of, of the presidents. And in fact, we had a speaker not too long ago come in and just looking at economic policy ranked Hayes as number one out of out of all of the presidents. Uh, well, he tied with uh, he tied him with uh, Roosevelt, right, Dustin? Yeah, so you know, okay, all right. So so McKinley moves up on our list then of of the Ohio presidents. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I think. It's interesting to think it's hard to just rank a pre- you know what are you ranking mm-hmm. them on yeah, is it correct. their foreign policy is it their right. domestic policy is their economic is their, their track record on civil rights um so i it, i think you have to pick what it is that you're interested in and then you pick you, you know who you thought did the best yeah. job at that yeah. thing that's a very political answer that's very good, good. you should run for office christy well done yeah that's great <laughs> I, I gotta i'll just stick with I, I have an answer i'll stick with christy's answer that was there great. you go yes <laughs> <laughs> So finally, my last question, do you have a favorite quote of from POTUS number 19? Dustin, do you have a favorite quote? Oh, uh, you know, it's, it, it's going to, it's going to be the, the obvious, well, maybe obvious to us, but it, but it's, but it's the one that I think is the most important today. Um, in his inauguration, he said, he who serves his uh, party best serves his country best. The important part of this is that by focusing less on partisan uh, nature, focusing on what's best for the country, you're actually going to help your party. 
um, and you're going to make people respect you and what you stand for. Um, And obviously in this modern moment of politics where everything feels so uh, volatile and, and partisan, focusing much more on the upright nature of what you're presenting in a way that, yeah, it's still playing politics. You're still going to make your party look good. But you're doing it with the greater intention of helping the country. And I think that's a, that's a very important uh, lesson that mm-hmm. we can continue to learn. Sure. Christy, do you have a favorite quote? I totally agree with Dustin. And, I, you know, we, we've got that phrase, that quote of Hayes's in large letters up in our rotunda over the doorway, because mm-hmm. we think that that is a, a great reminder for people. But, um, you know, he certainly has lots of lots of quotes that are particularly wonderful or just insightful, mm-hmm. um, you know, interesting for various reasons. I, you know, one of the things that we don't get a chance to talk about very often, but in his later years, you know, he's at Spiegel Grove. He's still very much having a, a trying to affect public policy. He's going to a lot of meetings. He's meeting people. He's giving speeches. He gets so radical in his later years. And, and a lot of his quotes that you read, or as you're looking at his diary, you know, he, he, he's talking about nihilism. He's an admirer of nihilism, uh, you know, 19th century nihilism, a little bit different from, from 20th century nihilism, but he really, you know, you, you would read Karl Marx and, and Rutherford B. Hayes, and, and you know, there was a lot of overlap there, which is um, stunning. So I think some of his quotes about, uh, you know, the, the people and trying to make life better for the people, you know, there's some, some interesting things there that I, I think give a lot of insight into, you know, kind of where he was standing on issues towards the end of his life. Christine Dustin, can you tell our listeners a bit about the Hayes Library Museum? What will they see when they get there, and how can they learn more about what you do? Sure. So we would love to have people come and see us. Rutherford and Lucy lived here at Spiegel Grove. They, they loved it, and uh, we like to share that that love of Spiegel Grove with others. So uh, we're located in Fremont, Ohio, and uh, Spiegel Grove is a 25-acre site uh, where the museum and library and then also Rutherford and Lucy's home are located right right side by side. Uh, Rutherford and Lucy are also buried on the property. Uh, we've got about a mile of paved walking trails, and we have about 1,800 trees. We're also an arboretum. Mm. So for people who aren't just interested in history, uh, but nature as well, um, we've got some wonderful things to see. We've got some fascinating exhibits in the museum. Uh, we have a fabulous research library with a magnificent manuscript collection Uh, not only of Rutherford and Lucy's own materials, but we also collect the areas in which he collected. So we have Civil War, we have Great Lakes history, we have local history, Ohio history, uh, um, a robust genealogical collection. So for anybody who's interested in those areas, we're a great place to come and research. We have rotating exhibits, we have uh, wonderful programs, Uh, we're doing more virtual programs, now um, and even in the coming before we get beyond, you know, or even after COVID, I think uh, those virtual programs will stay. Uh, we love reaching as wide of an audience as possible. The house has uh, been beautifully restored. Uh, the first floor of it to Rutherford and Lucy's era, you know, the, the 1880s, uh, when they last uh, occupied the house uh, multiple generations after Rutherford and Lucy lived in the home. The Hayes family occupied the home until 1965. So uh, we tend to focus on Rutherford and Lucy, but we also relate the the story of some of those later generations. So the second floor is more 1950s and 60s, uh, whereas downstairs is is 1880s. So it's it's kind of interesting to see that that full timeline. So we do hope 
that people will come and stop by and check us out. I can, again, say from personal experience, a wonderful place. I really enjoyed the Library Museum. The home was gorgeous, the property. So really encourage everyone to go. Thank you so much for a fascinating discussion today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, Our great. pleasure. The American POTUS podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents, graphic designed by the Thought Bureau, and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook or Twitter. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Rutherford Hayes, quote, Personally, I do not resort to force, not even a force of law, to advance moral reforms. I prefer education, argument, persuasion, and above all, the influence of example, of fashion. Until these resources are exhausted, I would not think of force.